Hi everyone, welcome to Such Good Feeling. Today's guest is without doubt one of the finest soul voices the UK has ever produced. From his beginnings working with Richard Niles through to highly acclaimed albums and singles, including the seminal dance classic I'll Be Waiting and his timeless duet with Celine Dion on When I Fall In Love. He is a treasure. There are so many people that I know that have wanted to hear this man speak and talk about his career and his life. And he is loved by so many people. Um, welcome, Clive Griffin. Hi, Steve. Lovely to see you. And you too. It's we uh, we know you know. To be fair, we do know each other. We made records together, but uh, we um, kind of reconnected last year and uh, and got to kind of reminiscing and between us and a wonderful friend of mine called Ian Usher and uh, uh, someone at Universal managed to get. To well, all of your albums are on streaming now, which is fantastic news. It is fa fabulous news uh, for me. I mean, I know when we spoke that um, I said I had uh, a few things that I'd wished were out there for people to listen to if they wanted to, and that was one of my uh, wishes on my bucket list was to get my first two albums out. And again, thanks to you and Ian Usher and Mike Baker uh, at the label, they're finally there, which is fabulous. Yeah, so there's, I mean, the Sony album, I think, was kind of up already, but um, certainly I'll be waiting the original version of that. I think just the remix was up, um, and but there wasn't anything else. And now they're, they're all there, and in, in it's full splendour. And I think, as you were saying to me, it was just like, in this world, you've kind of got to be on streaming to have even been kind of existed almost. Yeah, I think for me, um, because I kind of stepped out uh, of the music business for, for a little short while, um, I had all of this stuff that was uh, lurking around in my loft that was just sitting in my loft and uh, from videos to tracks and uh, obviously the the. the the two albums that weren't out there. And I know when we, we initially spoke about a year ago about it, um, uh, I wanted to get it out there because we don't live forever. And why should it be sitting in my loft um, when if we can get stuff out there, it's there for eternity. And then um, when I do finally go, at least my mission has been achieved that um, a lot of this stuff is available. It should people want to listen to it. Absolutely. You're not going anywhere for a long time either, which is a good <laughs> thing. But the other thing that Clive's done is, um, you know, entered the world of YouTube and Instagram. And um, there's all this, well, literally, as you say, there's treasure from the loft that you've been able to kind of convert. And, you know, there's a couple of, there's a few, there's some amazing things up there. I mean, the last time I saw you before you did any of this, there was, uh, you showed me an incredible kind of video clip from Ronnie Scott's that is now on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, that that was quite, um, it was quite a precious little concert for me, that one. Um, the, the quality of it wasn't brilliant from the video. It was only a V8 video, but there was a real energy and a magic about the performances from the whole band. Uh, and within that show, I was lucky enough um, to have one of my idols uh, with us for the show, Michael Ruff, who... For some, those of you that don't know Michael, may or may not do, but I've followed Michael's career ever since I was a teenager, uh, a little unknown uh, singer from LA who put out an album and is, is, went on to be Shaka Khan's musical director and a variety of others too. So, And also Sheryl Crow uh, was part of that um part of that band before Sheryl Crow went on to be the Sheryl Crow everybody knows now. But I think that the energy 
behind it and what the feel that you I got from that was one of the things that I definitely wanted to get out there uh, on YouTube and then so far a lot, a lot of people have, have have been looking at it and commenting on it so again really happy that it's there absolutely so you know you talk about your love of musicians and soul music in general I mean going back to growing up was there a lot of that kind of music playing around your house when you were a kid <laughs> it's funny that actually my mum used to play the piano, and uh, she used to like people like Perry Como, Inkbert Humperdinck. She loved Frank Sinatra. Um, but my dad was not musical in any way, shape, or form, but he was cool because he liked Dion Warwick, he liked Burt Bacharach, he liked Stevie Wonder, he liked Motown, but wasn't musical. Um but from what I gather, I, my mum used to play the piano and I was always jumping around singing from a very early age, from I was about five years old. Um, and she obviously saw there was something there and she said to me, you're going to go for singing lessons. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go for singing lessons. I want to go out and play in the fields, you know. And But I went for singing lessons. Um, and uh, the teacher at the time suggested to my mum that I should go into a local talent competition, a Surrey uh, talent competition, which I did, and I won it. Um, and from there, I think my parents thought there might be something in it. And I think my singing teacher said that there's definitely something here that should be pursued. So I ended up going to a stage school. Um, which day school? Corona Academy for Music and Dramatic Arts, okay. which is no longer around. But for those of you that remember the Centrinians films, they were all of the Corona Academy kits and they're the same uniform, the green and yellow uniform was there. So it was quite a, a famous school. A lot of fantastic people came out of that school. I mean... I had Nicholas Lindhurst, who was Rodney in Only Fools and Horses, was in my same class. Um, there was a whole host of people, Dennis Waterman, a huge amount of people that went on to do a variety of different things within entertainment. So for me, it was an amazing time uh, having met so many great people. But I, I ended up going there for an audition and uh, they accepted me, but they actually accepted me for no fees because my parents didn't have any money um, at all, in fact. <clears throat> they were sort of scrimping and scraping. But the school took me on. Um, they also had a, a, an agency by the side as well. So what used to happen, you went to the school to, to learn your education and learn, learn about theatre and whichever avenue you wanted to go in. Um, but they also sent you out for auditions. So you were kind of working whilst you were at school, which was kind of a cool thing to do at the same time. Um, and I was lucky enough um, to do most of the things that I did with vocal singing. Uh, I was never a very good actor. Um, I went for castings and I was considered for certain films and acting roles, but it was always my voice. I always was kind of a, a young kid session singer, really. Um did a variety of things um, from Little Donkey, the song that we all hear at Christmas. That was one of the first things. And Finger of Fudge adverts. And then I um, flirted with films, did a little bit of work. Um, well, <clears throat> Oliver film was a, a film that came up at the time. I'd only just been at school, just been at school. And the casting for Oliver, the original film, uh, I think I must have been about seven years old. Um 
and I was not very good at acting, but they seemed to see something in me. So I got down to the last three or four. But eventually, uh, Mark Lester, who was at the same school, got the part, but they liked my voice. Um, so they filmed the film, and then I was asked to go in and do the vocals. Uh, but there was also a girl that was doing the vocal there doing the vocals at the same time because back in those days um films a lot of films were made that way you know they had the action film so <clears throat> i'm not quite sure whether i ended up being the voice of oliver or whether it was the girl i've like, seemed to think lately uh reading something later that they used the girl's voice but actually i just couldn't tell you it sounds like me to a point but it may may or may not be so um <clears throat> That was a great experience, you know, you know, having going through that at the time, which also led on to um, a whole host of jingles for, for TV. Um, I then um, started getting involved in stage shows. So I went for an audition for Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dreamcoat with Paul Jones from Manfred Mann. Um, we did that for two seasons, two years actually. The <clears throat> Victor, the uh, I, I can't remember the name of the the theatre now. Small little theatre, a fantastic show, and that's where I um, really honed in. Um, it was like going to work. And just before we go on with that stuff, I mean, obviously, you're very much in the musical theatre thing. That's where you're kind of. That's what you, you you're learning and everything, but I mean, was that that's not the music you were listening to when you went home at night, right? No. So I was listening to uh, Stevie Wonder. I was listening to Maze at the time, Frankie Beverly, one of my favourite artists um, uh, from from my mum's era that, that she used to listen to was Johnny Mathis, and Johnny Mathis, funnily enough was probably a big influence on me because I loved his silky tones and I loved his intonation and how he sung and the, the feeling that you got when you listened to his songs. So I, I, from a vocal point of view, he was probably one of the earliest influences on this is the kind of direction I want to go in. Um, so, yeah, I remember that very clearly. And he was actually, I mean, he obviously had a lot of pop records, but... At the heart. I mean, Johnny Mathis was a crooner, wasn't he? He was. And I think to a point I always have been to a degree. Um, love Frank Sinatra, love the classics, Nat King Cole. Um, even though I kind of broadened my horizons and went into different areas, um, I still love the ability of being able to sing a ballad. Um, for me, it was always the test of, a true singer, whether they could sing a classic ballad and make it sound believable. Yeah, definitely. And was there, as side of Johnny Mathis, I mean, there's, I suppose there comes an interesting point in what you're doing and what you're talking about, which is where the kind of the part, the, where your voice breaks, basically. Ah, yes. So it was, funnily enough, halfway through doing Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Mm. I remember one day going on stage and I went to hit a note and nothing came out. And one of the guys, Eric, next to me just looked at me as if to say, well, why didn't you join in on that part? You know, and I remember afterwards saying to the musical director, I think my voice is going breaking. And we had about another, I think, a month to do with the show. So I got through the show 
And actually, it was quite a worrying time because I'd spent quite a lot of time honing that sound that I had, which was very, it was very, very clean sort of choir boy type sound at the time. At, at the time. And I was worried, was that ever going to come back? So it was a period of about three years where it's different for, for, for men as it is for women. Women's voices don't break, so they can just continue to progress. But when your voice breaks as a man, you almost have to start again. You still have the knowledge that you gained, but it's about channeling it from scratch almost. So men tend to be a little bit behind women when it, in the development of, of, of vocals. <clears throat> so... I kind of wasn't doing a lot of work at the time. Um, and I had previously um, a couple of guys, a couple of twins from school, uh, Jeremy and Paul Stacey, who've gone on to be extremely uh, successful musicians, said to me, well, look, let's just go in the studio and put some demos down. So I went in the studio, I think, and did a, a demo tape of four or five, tracks i think i did ride like the wind christopher cross um air supply record all out of love air supply a variety of different things and we recorded it and I, that was at the point where i kind of decided that i wanted to be a recording artist and was your voice because obviously after your vote your voice broke then it began to did it is that when it started to sound like what everyone knows your voice to sound like, which is a sort of, you're talking about the kind of record you were, I mean, obviously Michael McDonald is a huge influence on you. Yeah. And did that, is that how it just naturally came out or did you work on it? No, or? I worked on it. And I, it's interesting you mentioned Michael McDonald because my favourite singer of all time is James Ingram. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, sort of uh, from who, the same uh, They're very, you know, yeah. they, they have the same feel about their, yeah. their, 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 their voices. Um, and I was lucky enough uh, to, to work with James Ingram. But I listened to James Ingram and I, when I heard his voice, I just thought, that that's why, where I want to be. I want to be, I want people to listen to me and believe what I'm singing. And I think at the beforehand, I was singing the notes and I was singing the technique. Um, and to a point, it could have sounded a little bit sterile. You know, and <clears throat> there's a difference between singing a song and singing the notes and the lyrics. But there's a different education needed to sing a song with the believability and actually put your heart and soul into it, as well as trying to keep the technical aspects there as well. So I think I got that more from, as you say, the uh, uh, James Ingram, but loved the Doobie Brothers as well, you know. So, so it was definitely those two characters that, uh, that, that I moved more towards, and, and also Marvin Gaye as well, who was a huge influence on me. Well, I think that's interesting that you worked on that. You know, it's not, it, it, there was your natural voice, but then you were just, your, all the influences were coming in. And I would imagine that on the demos you're talking about, even at a young age, there was a lot of traces of what ended up being your voice, your recording voice. I guess so, but <clears throat> there was a period in time when I was working, writing songs because I put this demo tape out that, um, and uh, to all the record companies and they all came back unanimously saying, we love the voice, but you've got to write your own songs. And that was in the day whereby cover versions, people didn't do cover versions. So I then spent uh, two or three years learning how to write songs. And I was writing with this guy, um, 
And it wasn't really in a direction that I wanted to go in, um, to be honest with you. But at the same time I was writing with this guy, he got commissioned to do some demos for a young guy uh, that uh, that lived in Manchester. I think it was a young 16-year-old singer. Um, and we got him in the studio, and I and I helped, but we re- soon realised that the the guy could couldn't actually sing, so I ended up putting the vocals down and uh, as guides, and then he sung over the top, put the demos together, um, and about three months later, <clears throat> we were writing, and we got a phone call from this guy's manager to say, "Is Clive there? Can he can he get into the studio? I need him to come to the studio." So we went to the studio, but as it transpired, um, they'd put this whole show together again at Manchester Apollo and they'd invited, they'd filled it with school children and they'd mimed the tracks in front of a band and he'd got, uh, I think Sony um, was the first label. He signed to Sony in the end. Um, And, of course, a record company was seeing, you know, Hammersmith Apollo, uh, sorry, Manchester Apollo, full of kids going mad, we've got to sign this guy. So I go to the studio, Eden Studios in in Chiswick, and uh, Richard Niles is uh, producing the track. Well, that's my first uh, introduction to Richard. And uh, I went in and did the tracks, um, and we did the same thing as we did on the demos, and I think Richard was really worried because he had been commissioned to do this song and he he needed the vocals. So we, we got the vocals done. Um, and that was my first um, <clears throat> meeting with Richard. And it was at that time when I was quite unhappy with the direction that I was going in. It, was, it wasn't exactly the music I wanted to do. And Richard said, well, send me some of your tracks. And it was Richard actually that... Um, commented on it and said there's more in there than than what I'm hearing. He said, how about we get together and do some stuff? And that's how my relationship with Richard started. We wrote, I think it was nearly a whole album's worth of demos, which ended up becoming my first album. Um, And at the same time, um, Richard had his bandzilla, which was a big 32-piece jazz funk band which was amazing and he said well right let's write a couple of songs and come and do them for the band you know which i did so i wrote never too lame willpower for with richard for his, his band and then he got uh i remember we did a i think it was a, a gig in a bull's head in, in in barnes and um this was before she became famous ruby wax was there with somebody from channel four um and Richard got commissioned to do her first ever Ruby Wax show on Channel 4. So consequently, I went on and did uh, my two tracks. Um, and I kind of remember that how it transpired. <clears throat> Richard was working with Swing Out Sister and had, been, had mentioned me to their management company who heard the tracks and said, leave it with us for a week uh, and we'll see where we go. But it just happens that the stars aligned that one of my songs, I was doing the Never Too Late, my first song on the Ruby Wax show, that same Saturday evening. So they'd given the the, the demo tapes to Nick Angel at Phonogram Records and he really loved it. And then 
obviously the show came out, Ruby Wax Show, and I think it was probably within the space, we met, and I think it was in the space of two or three weeks that I had my first phonogram deal. And it was just so happened that we had already written all of these tracks. <clears throat> um, so it was an album, there or thereabouts, ready to go, bar sort of going in and putting the strings and the finishing touches to it. So that's, that's how luck can play in your favour sometimes. That is incredible to sort of go from a meeting to sort of having an album. But obviously one of the biggest components of that is kind of meeting a kind of musical soulmate, which you did with Richard. Yeah, and I think that's so, so important. I mean, you know, you can, it's, you can, as a musician you, you or, or a singer, you do a variety, you can do a variety of different styles. But actually meeting that person, because um, I was never, I never classed myself as that talented when it came to um, real music. I can't, I can't read music. I can't um, do a lot of things that a lot of musicians can do. But um, having that some person that understands you, understands where you... And it, we talked about records we liked, and obviously the James Ingram came up, but the pages came up, which um, actually was turned into Mr. Mister. And there was a whole host of... Obscure artists like Bill LaBounty, um, oh, Bobby Caldwell, a lot of acts that I was listening to that Richard being American was au fait with. So we instantly clicked and we started writing um, and it just started working from day one, really. So when you've got these demos and, you know, as you say, the, the labels loves everything that you're doing, what is talk a bit about the next stage where you have to say right here's the demos now we need to make the record what happened then as in the decision of who's going to play on it where are you going to make it how's it going to sound right so that predominantly um was we talked about it but i knew a lot of good musicians but richard had to know and specifically Tessa, I think, was a big influence at that time because Tessa was, Tessa was a huge background yeah, vocalist. Yeah, just, just in case, but yeah, so Tessa Niles is um, the, the, the backing vocalist of backing vocal, like the queen of backing vocalists, Absolutely. who at the time was um, married to Richard. So just yeah. to have a context. And um, she was working with Eric Clapton <clears throat> at the time, amongst others. Um, and they, I think they were over, um, rehearsing, I think, or they were doing one of his 22 night stints at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, and she'd mentioned that she was doing some stuff in the studio during the day while he come down. So in comes Steve Ferroni, Greg Gaines, and uh, Nathan East. And I'm sitting there going, well, these are three of my all time favorite musicians. And, um, a lot of the parts have been already been, um, put down, but the bass parts um, really needed live bass on some of them. So Nathan played on a lot of, just came in within, and listened to the track probably within five minutes, knew exactly what to do and played bass on my album. So that was, you know, thanks to Tessa and Richard and their, their, their wealth of, um, uh, well, the, uh, the people that they know and the musicians that they can bring to it, really. Because I always maintain it's all about everybody. It's not about you. Um, I was just one part of the cog. Yes, I was the artist and yes, I was the, I was the singer, but um, you're nothing without everybody else that, that has a big part to play within making those records. 
Absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some incredible musicianship on that album. There's some incredible singing overall, um, obviously from you, but from other people. I mean, talk a bit about the, um, it'd be good to hear a bit about kind of how the choir came about on uh, Be There. Oh, now you're, now, now you're, you're tapping into something. I was probably the most nervous I've ever been. So we were in, um, we'd be making the record here and I think, Nick Angel had said to me one day, he said, there's something missing. He said, we need something. We need one or two more tracks. And Richard said, well, let's go to LA and just do some writing. So they agreed. So we went to LA, did some writing. We we were using Nathan's studio in his house downstairs and we were recording this track and Steve Ferroni came along and played drums in his living room. I remember that. Um, and... We were all dotted around the house. We we come up with this track, Be There, and Make Me Believe actually was another track that ended up on my second album. And Nathan said, yeah, you've got to go in the studio and record it. He said, um, leave it with me, I'll organise it. So the following day we went into a studio, Sunset Sounds actually, I remember it now, in LA. And um, <clears throat> he said, I've got you some great backing singers, got you some great backing singers. He said... Um, They'll be here soon. I said, oh, who have you got? He said, oh, I've got Phil Perry, I've got Vesti Williams and James Ingram. And I just went silent. I said, you, who you got what? He said, I've got, I said, did you say James Ingram? He said, yeah. I said, oh, my God. Anyway, so they came to the studio and I remember, so they were listening to the track, going through the track, and um, I remember Richard saying to me, oh, I'll just sing them the parts. And at that moment, I got stage fright. I've never been in a situation where I've never been able to sing or open my mouth, but having to sing the parts to James Ingram that I would like him to sing on one of my records <laughs> just seemed to be a little bit too much for me at the time. But I vividly remember doing the sessions and being in there with those four, and all I remember, I was standing opposite James Ingram, and all I remember was this stare that I got from him. We were just singing and looking at each other, singing and looking at each other. And uh, afterwards, he just turned around and gave me a high five and just looked at me uh, and said, yeah, the white boy can sing in his drawl that he did. And I'll just never forget that moment. It was just a tr tremendous moment for me. Uh, I mean, it, it, like n that whole thing about meeting a hero is always hard anyway, but that's doubly hard when it's meeting a hero first time and then you have to sing directly to him yeah. and say, this is how I want you to sing. I mean. Exactly that. Gosh. Um, but they, you know, to be honest with you, they put a different slant on it. I was singing it very white, very, the chorus, very white sort of English um, uh, pronunciation. And um, he twisted it around into a southern drawl and all of a sudden it all came alive. So it's very subtle changes to the way you would sing a certain word um, or how you would interpret something uh, is something that I really learned from those those early sessions. And it's not about what you sing, it's how you sing it. And that's what I learned. And vocally on that record, so I did you, so specifically on Be There, because I mean, there's so many incredible vocals on there, but Be There specifically as a lead vocal is extraordinary. Did you do that vocal 
at the same studio or was that the existing vocal or no it was done at the same studio so you did it after kind of after the choir was on yeah it. so, I so did you a, were uplifted by absolutely that and i you know i did a guide vocal which wasn't wasn't far off and then they came in and and did the background vocals and then it, that really did give they, you're absolutely right it inspired me to give that kind of performance on that record which probably without that sound would never have happened mm. without the backing vocals there first i probably wouldn't have got to that point yeah and it is, a, I mean, everything about it, the BBs, you know, you're, it's just that gospel yeah, pop moment. Very much that, so. that the record, I mean, I actually, I'd forgotten that it was one of the last ones to be recorded, but it's absolutely right. And I think it's really, I, I've, there's quite a lot of times this has come up where people think they've finished an album and someone in a record company says, is there just one more thing? And nine times out of 10, that thing is, is, becomes incredible. But Nick, and Nick was absolutely right um, that there was something missing. But I remember I was all, I always loved gospel. I always used to love the sound of gospel. And I was living in Bolingbroke Grove in London and there was a, a church um, just down the road. And I often used on a Sunday to go around and listen to the, listen to the, listen to the, the, the gospel sound. And I was chatting to one of the guys and he said, no, come in, come in, come in. And I went in and I was the only white guy there. And But it was just the most amazing education to learn a different way of singing. And, and, and again, I think I learned by putting 100% or 200% or whatever, you, or your whole heart and soul into a song was what I learned from listening to gospel singers way back in the day before I even started recording my own songs. You come back from there, you've kind of got the record, it's obviously being mixed. Um, when it comes to choice of first single, as in the first time that people are going to hear you and your first foray into the world outside of obviously Banzilla as a solo artist, is was, was it always going to be the way we touch? Was there a choice of that? I had a really good relationship with my A&R guy at the time, Nick Angel, and he he knew... He, we both thought the same thing, and uh, it, it was a, a mutual decision as to what track was going to come out first. Um, and I didn't really disagree with any of the, the those choices back then. And with with Phonogram and Mercury, uh, they were all go. Everything was going in the right direction. How did you find the experience of everything that goes along with that, as in the photo shoots, the videos? The pop star bit. I kind of find that I I do I did kind of find that a bit difficult, and I, and I think I never wanted to be a superstar. I I never wanted to be just a star. I, it was music for me. It was about making records, being a recording artist, um, and I must admit, it, it, I did embrace it. I did enjoy it, but it is the one thing that I was never that uncomfortable with. It was you know I always liked being in the studio, wanting to write songs, wanted to be the creator and be the singer. And I suppose there's an element of if you're making records, well, the record company are investing in you, so therefore they're going to put you out there. Um, so it was part of the job um, and I embraced it, but never really felt 100% comfortable with it. You, Did feel comfortable with the live performances with the band, but not necessarily with the promo and stuff. Yeah, but I guess because you'd had performance training from all that time at stage school when it came to okay we're doing a video for the way we touch this is you kind of have to perform act you'd kind of grown up doing that so it wasn't 
totally out of your. Uh, I your didn't remit. find the videos difficult. Right, uh, making shoots. the videos, making the videos for the songs yeah. because that's part of music. And obviously, if you are, you know, <clears throat> even when you're on stage, you're performing. So, to a degree, performing. The songs on videos wasn't difficult. It was more the interview side of things and the, the going round and round and round, um, doing, doing doing that kind of stuff. Um, but it, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, and you, you're never going to get anywhere. Record companies aren't going to get involved with you unless you're prepared to to go along with what they think will make you successful. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So. Is the I'm imagining that the way we touch would that be the first time that you had heard your voice on the radio? Do you remember where that was? How that was? Where, where? Like, do you have any recollection of that first time? I do, and I've, I can't remember the radio show. It was a Friday night radio one DJ. Um, Oh, the DJ's name's gone, very famous DJ who was playing it. And I remember I was out. I was actually just driving in the car. I think I was going to a club with with some friends. And all of a sudden it came on. It was the most surreal experience, you know, listening to something that you'd worked on for so long. And all of a sudden there it was, you know. But also the first... Jeff. Jeff, Jeff Young. Jeff Young. I was just about to say first Jeff time, Young. First time, yeah, Because yeah. it, it was, yeah, that... What year was that? 80? 88. Yeah, so Jeff had a soul show. So, I mean, Radio 1 was very different back then obviously but yeah it was it would have been the jeff young soul show which everyone you know i certainly was listening to as well but i just think that i always find it fascinating that very first time that all of a sudden you and again you're not necessarily expecting it and there you are on the radio and you're listening to it in a car i think th- th- it's always surprising i don't think you ever get used to it um i remember <clears throat> uh, many many years later i was out in la and i was in a shop shopping and um all of a sudden <clears throat> the radio was on and I, I like i kind of said to myself oh i like this song and i carried on shopping then it dawned on me so it was one of my songs and I, I because i was out shopping concentrating on something else it didn't even dawn on me that the, the, the shop was playing one of my songs but i just thought oh i like this song but actually it tried, after like five minutes well this is me this is my song that's why i like it you know but yeah and there's so many incredible songs on that record. I mean, it was, there's so many, obviously I bought it, there's so many other people that bought it, but, you know, you've got beautiful songs on there. I mean, By Heart is still a, one of the most incredible songs you've written, I think. It's one of my favourites. And again, you know, it wasn't just Richard and I, we we worked with Jess Bailey, mm-hmm. who, who wrote some songs there, the keyboard player play and writer that, that played with me right the way up until when I went to the States. JJ Bell again, he, he was a writer, great guitarist, um, sadly no longer with us. But, you know, there was a, a whole host of people that 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 put that album together. Um, and I'm just grateful to have been able to work with them all. You know, and Dolette McDonald, another great mm. singer, who um Tessa, I remember those days singing the the vocals with Dolette, Tessa and myself. Amazing. Great, great fun. So the album, I mean, there was a few singles from it. I mean, it was, there's lots of, you know, the, we're from the days of CD singles, so there's all the extra tracks and live stuff and everything that was amazing. And, it, you know, it was one of those albums that I think would be rightfully described as critically acclaimed. Um, didn't quite have the kind of, the single that kind of propelled it into the stratosphere, but if you knew, you knew, basically. 
I think it goes back to we were doing the music that I wanted to do and I was grateful to be able to do that. But it wasn't necessarily what was current at the time. And it, there were elements of it that, that we made <clears throat> that we, we had to kind of obviously we're, we're looking to market it so we need to make it as commercial as we could. But it was always slightly left field from, from mainstream at the time. So it doesn't surprise me that we didn't uh, have, a, have a breakthrough at the time because a lot of people said it was slightly before it's probably slightly before it's time, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess with that in mind, once that album was done, you obviously had signed a, a, a label deal and in those days that meant, you know, a few albums. So I imagine, did you just, just you and Richard just go straight back in the studio and start writing? So we never stopped writing, even through when the album came out. We did. We went. We continued writing. <clears throat> we had some songs that never made the first album that were then considered for the second album. And uh, I remember at the time having a conversation with Nick Angel, and Nick Angel was saying to me, "Do you know, Clive? I think I'd like to go in a slightly different direction." And it was interesting that I was kind of. Not it wasn't a different direction musically. It was more of a production direction, slightly different production direction. Um, and for no fault of of Richards in any way, shape, or form, Nick wanted me to try working with a couple of other guys. So I did, and I started working with Dave Clayton and Joe Dwarniak, and we hit it off straight away. Uh, I remember we went in and recorded I Am, which was on my second album, and I Want to Feel Love, which is a song that I wrote with Nicky Brown, who I had a great relationship, wrote a number of brilliant, in my eyes, some of my, my nights, Love is a River, Show Me Someone Who Cares, Want to Feel Love, brilliant. You know, and Nicky got me as well straight away. Um, so... We recorded it, and I remember having a conversation with him because I never liked SSL, and I'm, you know, and I still don't like SSL. And the reason why was because I found it it, it made thing it crushed the sound, and because my voice was quite big, and I I liked the bottom end of, of things. I liked bass and warmth. We had we decided that we were going to record it using. <clears throat> Um, non-SSL equipment. So we went in and used Neve, basically. Uh, and I moved away from standard microphones and went back to the old uh, Neumann tube microphones, the AKG tubes with a Pultec graphic equalizer, remember it now. But they were all tube, old school equipment. And it created a different sound. It created a sound that I loved. And it was a sound that I always sound I grew up with slightly less poppy but um uh so we that's how my relationship on my second album started <clears throat> with uh, Joe and Dave and we continued that and I even continued it right the way through uh, all my recording uh, days really uh, from then and I always tended to use the same microphones and try where possible to use a tube desk yeah yeah, you're a big fan of low mid warmth. Absolutely, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's and and that's and so you should be because that's where your register is. Yeah, and it's and I remember having a <clears throat> long story short a conversation with uh, David Foster many many years, and David Foster again loved David Foster, fabulous producer, um, which 
And I remember having a conversation with him and we were trying something. And I said to him, this isn't working for me. I said, I, I can't feel it. And this was an SSL with an ordinary microphone. <clears throat> and he said, well, why don't you come to my house the following day? He said, I've got a tube um, desk. He said, I've got a Neve desk. And he said, I'll get you in at a, a tube mic. And the following day, he went in perfect and within like half an hour everything was hunky-dory and he said well you're absolutely right there and it made it made me realize that I'd found you know because it's not all about what you do as I've said before you've got to find the right equipment the right people the right situation to be able to perform well and I think you know some of it might be psychosomatic and you might think well it's a Neve desk it's a um a valve microphone so it's going to sound great and it did but um as an artist, you've always got to put yourself into a place where you feel comfortable because I feel that if you're comfortable, you will give your best performance. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's come up a bit on this podcast before that I've spoken to people, um, both producers and singers, about my theory of, which actually comes indirectly from David, actually, about whatever you are going to do when you're recording a vocal, when you're producing a vocal, the most important thing is the person that's singing it has to be in the most comfortable place they can be and feel completely safe and hear exactly what they want because for a producer, it's just another day. It's just another session. But for the singer, that vocal will be with them for the rest of their life. It's very true because when I was doing lead vocals, I never used to like anybody in the studio apart from me, the producer and the engineer. And it was about f having that connection with those three people and just having no distraction apart from what you're actually doing. I always found when there was A&R guys around or other management people around, my, my mind would wander and I wouldn't, my heart wasn't really in it. Mm. So I always kind of tried to ban people when I was doing lead vocals as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. And you just want to hear what you want to hear and only you can hear sound the way you can hear sound. And we weirdly, before we started this, we were actually having a conversation about this. And, you know, especially when you have a very powerful voice like yours, you know, if, if someone's listening to it from outside of it, they're only hearing the output, but you're hearing it double, you're hearing the output plus what's coming from inside your body. Exactly. So it has to be exactly right for you to be able to get the performance you need. And hence, as you know, and a lot of people, I always used to ask people to turn the volume up, you know, and, and cause I, I, because it was difficult to, to hear. You need to have the volume coming back to you the way you're pushing it out. So hence, uh, I suppose people that have similar kind of voices to mine probably are quite similar and they always have their monitors extremely loud. And I never used to use um, studio uh, heads, headphones because I, I found them slightly muffled. I couldn't quite hear the clarity that I wanted. So I always used to use uh, Sony digital um, uh, earphones and have it up extremely loud. But it's, it's the space I wanted to be in to be able to get the best vocal out, you know. Definitely, definitely. So... Obviously, you did the work you were doing with Joe and Dave was uh, was incredible. Um, am I right in thinking that I'll Be Waiting was sort of, had come along in between the records? I mean, was that one of those songs that you'd written with Richard just after the first album? Or? Yeah, it was, uh, this is, a, yeah, we did. We wrote this, um, initially we wrote it as a solo vocal, you know, um, but then we said, well, you know, this could work as a duet. 
But what what had you set out to do? Do you remember the day you wrote it? Do you remember what what was the vibe for it? Were you just trying to write a big, fantastic, up-tempo soul record? I think I had an idea for a melody. Uh, And then Richard came up with the hook. Um, And between us, it took us a couple of days to actually finish the track because I think we... um, thought a little bit about the middle eight longer than we would have normally. Um, but it was quite, it's a song that came together really, really quickly. And, and uh, again, we were on the same page with it. So it was a combination of having a bit of a melody and then Richard coming up with a hook. And then I always used to like having more than one hook in a song if I could. So I was always looking for another riff as well normally a backing vocal riff that became part of a melody for the song. Um, So I was always looking for two or three different hooks within one song if I could find them. Um, And we had this conversation about trying as a duet and he mentioned Jackie Graham, who Richard knew really well. So Jackie said, yeah, I'd love to to do this. So we went into the studio and we, we ripped it up, you know, sort of we kind of, I sung, Jackie sung, and then we sort of decided how the melody would work with two voices. Um, And it started off sounding a bit like a Jam and Lewis record, actually, if uh, people remember those from from way back. Um, And I was, again, it goes back to your point, you know, not necessarily having the right single for the first album. We were conscious of that, making the second one. So, um, Again, they were very current, so we kind of looked at that vibe and thought, "Well, that's not dissimilar to what we're doing." So let's 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 follow that avenue. So we did that, and Jackie um, sung sung on the record. Um, but I'd been working with Nikki Brown, and we had written "Love Is a River," which came off of was on that album as well. And he got in a singer called Sarah Brown, and. She sang on Love is a River and I just fell in love with her voice. She was she just had the same type of voice. She was velvet sound, similar voice to mine, I suppose, in many respects, to, to, to the way she sang. Um, and on the record, we'd, we'd had her in doing um, backing vocals and I said, come on, let's, let's give it a go, come on. She was like, no, 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 no. I said, come on, give it a go, let's go. And that's how it transpired. You know, Sarah Brown ended up being the, the, the vocalist on the record. And for me, it was like I knew it straight away that the, the, the combination of the sounds of voices would work close, work well together. Um, so, yeah, that's how I'll be waiting uh, transpired. But it's interesting that you – it normally goes the other way around. You normally – get a lesser-known singer to do the demo and then a better-known singer to be on the record. But this one went the other way around. It did. If you had Jackie first. I mean, presumably there's a version of I'll Be Waiting with Jackie on it. Oh, it's in the loft. (laughs) The loft. We're going to find it. It's in the loft. It's a loft excavation. And I think it goes back to my relationship with my A&R man as well at the time, Nick. I knew instantly, and he loved her her sound on it, and he said, if it's right for the record, then we go what's right right for the record. And uh, thankful at the time that I did have that kind of relationship that I was able to do that, because a lot of people probably wouldn't say, no, you've got to have Jackie on it, or you've got to find somebody else bigger bigger and better. But, you know, I I think it worked out well in the end. 
Oh my God, it worked out incredibly well. And of course, the version that everyone is familiar with isn't the Jam and Lewis sounding version, isn't even the kind of Joe and Dave version. It was when it was sent off to David Morales to do his magic that he does. And um, that ended up being the version. Well, yeah, it was interesting. There was a version in between those two, actually. So we'd done the demo and then Dave and Joe got involved and we'd put live drums down on it. And it was, it, it turned into a different type of version, but it was a, it was a kind of like brand new heavy Z type thing. Um, uh, but then David Morales got hold of it <clears throat> and turned it into what it, what it is now. And uh, it did a great job, you know, fantastic. It was only a remix to start with, only supposed to be sent out for a remix. And I remember it coming back and Nick saying to me, what do you reckon? I said, well, that's the single, isn't it, you know? The, the, the edited version is the one that went on the album and went on the single. Yeah, and the thing about, I mean, obviously I'm a huge fan of David, but he, um, the one thing about him and Frankie and so many of those American remixes that certainly really, really inspired me is it was, they had musicality. They were musicians in the room. It wasn't just taking what was there and putting some beats on it. It was, I mean, I don't... I don't actually know if I want to say it was either, either Eric Cooper or Dave Schwartz who'd put the piano on it, but it was musical. It was classy. Cooper, I think. It was Eric, yeah. So it was a, it was a very classy dance mix. It and the was, guitar was... Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and it was... Um, and, the, and what was great about it, because obviously David knew... Obviously he was playing in New York a lot. You had that. It hit the Red Zone thing. It hit club. It, it was one of the... And actually, it's weird. I've... I think I've spoken about this before. There was a time around that time when that record came out where certainly in America, dance music was still a bit of a dirty word. And I've had conversations with Larry Flick about this and he would always say that you would never get a 4-4 song on the radio because they would just think, oh, well, it's dance, therefore it's not proper. Absolutely. Whereas I think what David did, and particularly that record did, proving why it was so successful, is because it had a great vocal, an amazing hook, and it sounded like a posh, expensive record. It broke down a lot of walls and was very ahead of its time and 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 was able to kind of allow a lot of other records to come through after it. I think it goes back to the it goes back to the song. <clears throat> and I've always maintained that the song is the, the ultimate important thing. Cause yeah, you know as well as I do that if you've got a great song, you can record that song in a hundred different ways. A hundred different artists can sing the song in their own style and it still stands up. Um, and, you know, for me, it was all about trying to put the song first and um, make sure that we got the right lyrics, make sure we got the right melody. And then obviously for me, uh, doing the vocal, it's about getting the right feel, uh, not necessarily singing the notes, but uh, the whole... You know, when people listen to a song, you want them to feel, get a feeling from it. And it's about the, the I keep using the word soul. It's, it's not necessarily soul. It's, it's putting your whole self into the song to make it believable. Um, and that's different, I think, when you're a lead singer to a background vocalist. So if you're doing additional vocals, for example, you need to be technically uh fantastic you know you need to blend with other people and you need to you know have a different level of of knowledge and and um expertise but you can afford as a as a solo singer to kind of lose a little bit of that and uh 
go for the feel and the experience and and and, and get um do stuff that you what you wouldn't normally be able to do if you were just doing uh, a session you know so yeah how how do you feel 32 years later that it's still such a beloved record and a bit amazed actually um because as you know as you mentioned earlier on i've never really done social media until lately um and so i'm now you know sort of on youtube and more than i was and spotify and all the the other platforms and i'm amazed at the listens it still gets after all these years you know and uh yeah, even the album on Inside Out. Uh, I know the, the the David Morales remix gets gets huge amounts of play still, but I know when the Inside Out second album went up, um, within two weeks, I happened to have a quick look at YouTube, see what's going on, and there was over a thousand hits, you know, within two weeks, and I was like, wow, mm. you know, people will still remember me. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, of course they will. Um, I, the there's always a moment in these podcasts where, and and I can't believe that I've never asked you about this before, but I get to sort of de- to ask a question about one of my favourite tracks. Um, and and I remember the first time I heard it, and I could still even thinking about it now it gives me goosebumps. But um, what do you remember about writing and recording "Don't Make Me Cry"? Right. So this was two different feelings. Actually, we I wrote the song with Richard at the piano, and we wrote the song within forty five minutes, from beginning to end. And I think. Um, it was probably one of the quickest songs, and we never really had a chorus, and we had a we had a, an idea. We did have the you know we had the, we had the hook "Don't Make Me Cry," but it wasn't necessarily structured in the normal sense of the word a chorus vocal. It was just a line, <clears throat> and and so that line comes in within the song in different places in in different guises. <clears throat> so it's kind of <clears throat> unique for us to write something like that. But I do remember doing the actual vocal in um, uh, Easy Hire Studios in London, actually. Again, another Neve desk, fantastic. Um, and uh, Joe Dwarniak couldn't do that track, so it was just me and Dave, Dave Clayton. And uh, I remember we did the back backing track, <clears throat> And uh, it was one of those moments about nine o'clock at night when we should have really been going home. And Dave said, oh, go and have a go at this. You know, have a go at that one now. It's probably the right time. So I did. And it was just, it just happened. <clears throat> you know, I think I dropped in once in the track. Um, it was one take. We, we, we tried it two or three takes, but I think it ended up being a one take track pretty much. Uh, and I think I dropped in once. Um, but I remember right at the very end, uh, getting heart palpitations, <clears throat> probably for the first time. And it was because I was putting so much into that vocal that it was stressing out my body. And I remember saying to him afterwards, I've got to go outside, I've got to go outside. So I had to go outside and uh, take a bit of fresh air. But yeah, it was a great, <clears throat> a great, a great moment for me actually to, to to get that kind of performance out. And I remember saying at the time we had Nikki Brown, Sarah Brown was doing background vocals as well. I said, I want something that, you know, at the end of it that's just a little bit different you know a little bit off maybe some kind of african chanting something like that and that then the end the, the end track just came up with us all busking you know and mm. different grooves on it which was, which was fantastic but yeah it's um 
it's vocally it's for me it's one of my favorite things you've you've ever done and it really does it sits in the same world as i don't have a heart by james ingram vocally for me that it's in that and it's interesting you said that it was just it just felt like it well obviously from what you've said it just poured out of you yeah um but again, the lyrics and the melody allowed me to, to put that performance onto it. And I can yeah. go back to the song again, you know. Yeah. You know, you've got to have that. And then as a singer, that's your vehicle to be able to do everything else that that, that you can do in, in the performance of the song. Yeah, yeah. No, it's an, it's an incredible song and there's so many amazing songs on that album. Again, both these albums are, are now on, on streaming, which is, so please go and check them out. Um Again, the album, I mean, I'll Be Waiting is a massive club success, massive dance success, probably the most successful thing you've done up until that point. You know, the album critically acclaimed. And obviously the other thing the album allowed you to do was do the thing that you love more than anything, which is live, and including the opportunity to support Eric Clapton at the Royal Albert Hall. Well, this was another bizarre scenario. So I remember... Or what happened was after that album, after the Inside Out album, Nick Angel, my and our man, um, was given the opportunity of going to be the head of A&R for Island Records, um, leaving Phonogram. And he took Jamie, my manager, with him as well, who became a part of, of the Island team. So the two people that were really my stalwart people that were behind me had, had left uh, to follow different careers. So I think we put out another single, Reach for the Top, off of that album. Um, and then because you, because I didn't really have the person there fighting my corner, um, it's very difficult to, you know, sustain, um, to get another album out of that record company be able to specifically as we'd had some success but we hadn't actually blown the barn doors off so to speak it was going to require a little bit more to actually get to that point so unfortunately i ended up uh, in 91 after the inside out album without a record deal um and it was at the time when i was still writing and I think I may have met you at the time. Yeah. And we'd started to write. Yeah, just for clarification, and I told this story before when I interviewed Terry Ronald, but I got signed to a publishing deal, which was by a man, wonderful, lovely man called Mike Sefton, who was very brave, who gave me a publishing deal before I'd even written a song. And he said to me, who would you like to work with? And the last two albums I bought were yours and Terry's. And I said, Clive Griffin and Terry Ronald, please. And dutifully, you both turned up separately. And we've all remained, we've all remained friends ever since. But that, that would have been the time that I met you, yeah. It was. <clears throat> and it was another one of those <clears throat> situations like it was with Richard. When we first started writing, it was just natural and it worked and it clicked. And it was just... The way it should, or, you know, the way it should be, and you always try and find people that it clicks with. And I think you've always had that ability to see what an artist is all about. And I think you know that's one of your great um, attributes, as you can you can look at somebody and know what what they're trying to do and make it happen for them. And I think that we hit it off. We like the same kind of music, albeit slightly different, uh, and we had that that grounding together. But 
how the Eric Clapton thing transpired is when I first put my first album out, Step by Step, I did a showcase at Ronnie Scott's. Um, and because Tessa was uh, singing with us uh, and working with Eric Clapton at the time, um, I remember coming out <clears throat> to my first showcase in front of all this music uh, business people that were coming to watch this new artist. And in the front row was Eric Clapton. And I walk out into stage and Eric Clapton was, and his band were sitting there and I'm thinking, no, I, I don't know if I could deal with this. But <clears throat> I remember that vividly. And I remember leaving that showcase and walking outside and just per chance I was walking out at the same time Eric Clapton was walking out. And I remember the photographers were all out there because they heard that Eric was there and they wanted photographs of him. And I remember one of the photographers shouting out, Eric, can we have a photograph with you and Clive? And he just turned around and said, I think you better be asking Clive. He said whether he would like, Mine's having a photograph taken with me, and that lived with me. And I thought, wow, you know, you know, Eric Clapton's Eric Clapton. <clears throat> and but I guess what he was saying really was, you know, when I reflected on it, was it's not my show; it's Clive's show. And you know, I really, I thought about that. And again, it's a measure of the man. So I'll get back to your question. I was <clears throat> without a deal writing. We were writing, and I was. <clears throat> became friendly with, um, well, through Tessa and Richard, I met Julia Carling, who used to be called Julia Smith. Julia Carling met Will Carling, and the rugby player, and married Will Carling. She used to like my music, and apparently one uh, evening, I think it was this at the time when she was with Jeff Beck, they were, Eric Clapton was around there, and my music happened to be on in the background. And apparently Eric Clapton said, I know this voice. And she said, oh, yeah, it's Clive. You know, unfortunately, he's not got a record deal anymore, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, she she phoned me up and told me about this. Oh, Eric was around. He really liked your record. He was really shocked and surprised to have a record deal. Oh, okay. A week later, Graham Perkins, who was looking after my my looking after me at the time, so I've just had a phone call from Eric Clapton's manager. He'd like you to go and have a meeting. I said, what's it about? I said, I don't know. He wouldn't say. He said, well, can you go there at two o'clock today? I went, yeah, okay. So I went, um, met with Roger Forrester, and Roger Forrester said, Eric would like you to be his support artist on his upcoming UK tour. And he said, oh, we're going around the country, but it culminates in 22 nights at the Royal Albert Hall. And I just said to him, I, I can't. I don't have any finances. I don't have any money. I, you know, I have a band, but we're not together. I said, I don't have a deal. He said, don't worry about that. He said, get Graham to put a budget together. He said, Eric's paying for it. I'm like, well, he said, no, Eric wants you to do, do the show and you put a budget together and I'll work with Graham. And that's how I ended up um, supporting Eric Clapton, which was just amazing. And, it, you know, it's kind of, when I think about it, it just, you know, you, you meet people along along the way and, you you know, <clears throat> you're nothing to the to these people, really. And to actually do something like that for somebody was just uh, out, outrageous in my eyes. And I was truly grateful to, for that experience because that then led me to getting my next record deal with Sony in America. Um, but again, it was through the, con you know, the I think people working with each other, the great musicians, Tessa working with Nathan, the showcase and everything, it was just... It, 
I was meeting people, uh, musicians that were, that were, you know, just, just liked what I did, which was amazing. Uh, yes, completely. And as you say, for an, for an artist like that to support a new artist, and I mean, it happens, it still happens to this day. Elton's really, really good at it, actually. He does a lot of that. But um, to, yeah, no, normally for some, for people that are listening, I mean, normally to get a support slot on a major tour is the record label has to basically pay for it. Well, and also there's, there's probably a hundred acts vying for that spot as well. Yeah, I mean, and it's the Royal Albert Hall. I mean, that's just, that must have been some of the best times of your life standing on that stage. Privileged and humbled by the whole thing, absolutely. And fun, right? And fun to be on there. But again, it's kind of, <clears throat> it was fun, but again, <clears throat> you know, my st style of my music is totally different to Eric's and... Um, but, you know, it gave me the opportunity. But again, it gave me the opportunity to win over some of his fan base and probably not all, all of them. Um, but uh, to have those opportunities and just be standing there for 22 nights, again, it was like going to work. You know, it's like, oh, for shows ended, I've got to go home, got to get up tomorrow. And I, you get into this whole, <clears throat> do the same thing every day at the same time every day leading up to those performances, you know. So talk me through how that, I mean, obviously Roger Forrester, incredibly legendary manager from Eric and Tina Turner and so many other people. Um, how does that, I mean, obviously you're doing the Clapton thing, you're writing songs, we're writing songs, writing songs with other people. What, how does that get from on the stage at the Albert Hall to having a conversation about signing a new record deal? Right, so again, it goes back to having the songs. And we were writing at the time, and we'd written uh, Slow Motion and a variety of tracks uh, for, to be just to write, you know, to, to, to write. And I think we were also doing uh, some writing for others, Alice and Limerick, we wrote yes, a couple of songs for. Yes, we did. And I, I was doing some sessions for you as well. Um, and Mike Sefton was a big, player in this again he's obviously at bmg he was our mm -hmm. a r man for, yeah. for publishing and arista were interested in signing me here in the uk um but david massey who used to be a manager managed lulu and a variety of other acts um had just been taken was going to take up a position as an r man sony in the states <clears throat> And he got to hear some of these tracks and asked to have a meeting. So I went to have a meeting, played him some of the R stuff and some of the other stuff that I've been writing. And he said, well, I always loved your, your, your last album and I'll be waiting and these tracks are, are you know, I always wanted one of my acts to sound like that. Mm -hmm. He said, um, <clears throat> how about do you fancy signing a deal in the States with Sony? He said, I'm, I haven't started yet, but I'm going to be there in about a month's time. So... And this was the back end of 91. So this was about November 91. And I said, well, that's fine. I said, by the way, just to let you know, I'm supporting Eric Clapton. At the... He said, well, that's, I'll be over in London. So he came to the show. So I'd already been introduced to him. He'd heard some of the stuff. And when he came to the show, he then said he was committed that he wanted to sign me. So I had the choice of <clears throat> signing to Arista or Sony in the States. And I jumped for um, Sony because I always felt that perhaps um, my music was more akin 
to the American market. Uh, so that's hence why, well, why I ended up signing, signing with Sony. And thankfully, he, again, um, barring a few tracks, allowed us to pretty much finish a lot of the tracks that we'd, that we'd um, been working on. And, and on that album, there were some of our tracks. I'd written a song with Pete Vitesse, Song of the Land, and Rob Fisher from Climby Fisher, Sexual, and Nicky Brown. So all of the people that, I, that I, I've loved working with had a part to play in that last album, which was great. And you were able to do the thing to me that had been done to you a few years before when having asked me to make the record and I was at the time, you know, I was relatively naive young producer, which, you know, you were putting the faith in me, which is great. But I remember distinctly saying, you know, well, where are we going to do it? And you said, oh, you know, there's this cool studio called Bearsville, Todd Rundgren, you know, works there. And I said, what's the band? And you, and you, without flinching, you just said, oh, it's, it's Nathan, it's Greg and it's Steve. And then I had the fear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because then you and I are on a flight to upstate New York in the middle of winter mm. into a place called Bearsville. It's called Bearsville because that is where the bears live. Absolutely. And believe me, they come and say hi, don't they? They certainly do. And there was a few scary moments late at night, I can tell you There's that. a little knock, knock, knock at the window and you open it and it's like, there's a bear. And I'm, I'm just for anyone that I'm talking about a real bear, like a furry bear, not, not another kind of bear. Um, and, uh, but yeah, we found ourselves there. I mean, it was a much familiar situation for you because you've been in that room. But I mean, as we're talking about it, I mean, one as a young producer, one of the scariest moments I ever had in my entire life was sitting there and um, Nathan East, Greg Fingain, Steve Ferroni, the finest musicians pretty much in the world, let's be honest. Um, they'd all kind of rocked up. They didn't know why the hell we were in the middle of nowhere, but they would, they were, they'd all rocked up. And I remember we were sat in a studio and we had the demos and we sat there and they said, oh, yeah, play us what you've got. And we played, I think it was probably slow motion, played the demo. And I looked at them and they were chatting. They were taking no notice whatsoever. And I all of a sudden thought to myself, oh, no, this is just going to be the longest. And I just, I, they're literally, you know, asking each other if they had, you know, they've been skiing or this. And at the end of it, I went. I said, I went, and I thought, okay, okay, these these are going to be these guys, aren't they? And I went, and I said, okay, guys, uh, I'll play it again for you, shall I? And then I think Nathan just looked at Greg and just said, bar fifty seven, does it go from the C to the B? And he said, yeah, it does. I said, right, let's go do it. It felt like they hadn't listened. They just, it was just so they could multitask so much, and then they went out and played it once, and note for note. Yeah. And that that is the well the, better actually the incredible uh, ability that that, that that musicians in general have, but specifically those three. And I think because they played together for so long as well, they knew each other and they knew where they were going to go with stuff. Um, but just you know, without even sort of picking up an instrument, they just went out and played it, and it was just like bang, yeah, job done. Yeah, know, and so. it was. I mean, okay, it's not. It's pop soul music, so okay, it's not like massively intricate, but I mean, it's not like three chords. It's just, and and the thing about those three people playing together and that pocket of where they hit it, it's it's kind of it's almost it's just spiritual. I think it's the only way I can describe it. It is, and one of my favourite albums is uh, Nita Baker. Yeah. 
So uh, love the Nita Baker. And, and that, that is sound. the rhythm section from that and first that record. And that is the yeah. rhythm section <clears throat> from, uh, from Anita Baker's. Uh, and again, you know, I think when you lock in with a musician or a writer, you're locked in, you know, you've, some people you can, some people you can't lock in with but when the genetics are right and everybody's singing on the, the same hymn sheet so to speak uh, it's fantastic and and that's why music is such a great thing because it can take you in a direction that you've never even wished to go in before yeah and this this and again the performances are measured they're not muso they're not you know and and again so many lessons learned i mean it was such it was a baptism of, baptism of fire but also it was the best apprenticeship i could ever have because even on, you know, one of the songs where we just decided there needed to be a piano solo. You know, the producer in me will always do that thing where you'll do a take and you go, oh, let's do another one. And I always just remember Greg went out and did the piano solo. And just as I was about to say that was amazing, he was walking past me. And I said, oh, that was amazing. He said, yeah, and I was like, there's not going to be another one. Exactly. Why would there be? Exactly. <laughs> And I remember we had such a laugh doing that, though. I mean, it wasn't just the music. We 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 were like kids, all of us. I remember Greg. He, I think he got a lift in a car, right? and it, bear in mind he was coming from sunny LA, you know, sort of eighty so degree mid winter, snowy there. It was snowy there, and he got out of the car and he just turned around and said, "What the bleep, bleep, bleep? Am I doing here?" It's so cold. But with, within the following day, because they had a house down the road they stayed in as well, and he was just so, I think everybody just warmed to that whole car. Oh, we're stuck here for a week. Let's make the most out of it. Mm. And we did. We had a great time. Um, made some great music. And that was really the basis of, of that second album, mm. those, those takes. Um, there was a, a TKO, I remember, um, off of that album, David Massey wanted me to go and meet Gamble and Huff, who who wrote and did the Ted, or Teddy Pendergrass. There's another one I mm. haven't mentioned. Teddy Pendergrass, what a what a singer he was. And I remember going down there to, and this was kind of a weird experience actually. Although they'd heard the track and they said, "Oh yeah, we'd like to go down." And I remember being taken down there by somebody from the record company all the way down to Philadelphia. We went sitting in the studio and. We're talking to them and we're, we're, we're talking and about 10, 15 minutes later they said, well, where's Clive then? And uh, I think it was Vivian, somebody, Vivian from the record company said, well, that's Clive. And they just looked at me and they went, you're Clive? I went, yeah. I went, wow, never ever thought that. <laughs> um, and it's probably just that, you know, sometimes you know, how people sound isn't exactly how they look, you know. And sometimes it can be a good thing. Sometimes it can go against you, you know. But that was a true experience for me, again, having being able to meet them in person, having listened to all of those great songs and, and productions that they put, was a great experience, another great experience for me. Um, and at the same time... Um, uh, the record label were keen on me. There were two or three songs perhaps we needed. I don't think we had the album, was, wasn't necessarily there, and we'd been working on stuff, and they were keen for me to go and write with Diane Warren, or, or not write with Diane Warren, go and meet Diane Warren. Mm -hmm. um, and I did. I went to LA, met Diane Warren, and that was, we hit it off straight away. Not, uh, I think musically, but more as people, uh, we had this kind of, 
um, slightly mischievous way about her. So I've always had a bit of a mischievous way about me, and she definitely does. But we hit it off really well. And I remember she said to me once, she said, she said well, what kind of music? She said, what kind of song do you want then? And I said, I meant, uh, I, I, I think it was just once I said, I, I want a song like Just Once. And she went, okay. And then she went to the piano and she started playing something. And she said, well, something like this. I went, that's it. So I haven't quite finished it yet. She said, okay, well, let's, she said, tomorrow let's go in with Guy, her producer, Guy Roche, and let's go in the studio and we record it and we record it. And actually, he, she left us alone to record it. And I, I remember when we recorded it, we, as soon as we finished, he said, I've got a phone dying. I've got a phone dying. Get her in the studio, get her down there. Anyway, and she came to the studio and he, he played it to her. And I remember she just looked at me like that and she went, I don't like what you've done there in a bit late. I went, well, what do you do? Like, well, that note, she said, I want it to be this one. I go, okay, fine. So long story short, 99.9% .9 of it she loved, but it was just this bit here. So we went in and did the bit. And funnily enough, that demo, that vocal ended up being the master vocal. Which, which I, is We Don't Know How to Say Goodbye. Right? We Don't Know How to Say Goodbye, yeah. which is another great ballad. Amazing you know? song. Great, great song of Diane. Amazing song. And then, of course, you get that kind of golden moment, the kind of crowning moment of it when the song that pretty much defines the record and, and it kind of probably the one song that people would know you the most for is the duet with Celine Dion. I mean, how does that come about? It's a very strange scenario, actually. I was <clears throat> recording Commitment of the Heart. I was in the studio. I think we just put the drums on it with Steve Ferroni and I, because I had to haul Steve over because <clears throat> I wanted the continuity to stay the same, even though I was, um, you'd produced the majority of it, but there were other people involved. I wanted the continuity to stay the same. So I said to Steve, can you get to LA by any chance? <clears throat> so he did. And we'd recorded the drums, I think, for that. For, we'd recorded the track, but we just put Steve on the drums afterwards. And I think I was just leaving the studio and I had a phone call from David Massimo and our man said, can you get over to... Um, Malibu and go and meet David Foster wants to meet you right oh wow I said David Foster wants to meet me I mean he's a huge a massive fan of his um so it's, this was surreal I went over to David's studio and uh I met him and we were chatting away and he said oh come on can I sing this you know when I fall in love don't you he said and, you know that can call so I said yeah yeah so we're in the studio he's around the piano and we, I'm singing when I fall in love and I said yeah that's great yeah, that's great he said oh well, come in me so we go through the studio doors into a room and there's five people there five or six people there start clapping and I walk into this room <clears throat> and I'm, I look at David Foster and I'm thinking what's going on here anyway so unbeknown to me we were just uh, marking through when I fall in love in the studio, but they, they, they were being pumped into this other room. And it was people from TriStar Pictures. I'm not sure who, who was there now and uh, people that were in this room. Um, and they, they kind of looked at me and they all looked at each other. And then I sat down and said, well, come sit down, come sit down. They said, how would you like to sing um, the theme tune to a new movie with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan? Um, it'll be a duet, but it'll be a duet of when I fall in love with Celine Dion. <clears throat> and uh, you can't, well, you can't say no, can you? I'm not, it's not likely to say no. So 
I did. And I remember that afternoon they said, well, let's go to the, if you're free, we'll go to Universal Studios and you can see a rough cut of the film so you get to see what the film's about. So I did. Um, And I think, I can't remember whether I came home and we continued working on our tracks or whether I did it pretty much the following day. I think it might have been pretty quick. Um, We went into the studio with an orchestra and I laid down the guide to start with uh, and then Salim laid the guide over the top to get the orchestra right. And then the following day I went into the studio to... To, to do the, the the main vocal. And that's the moment when I, <clears throat> I mentioned to you before about the microphone and the SSL. <clears throat> and that's the moment where it just wasn't happening. Um, and I remember David Massey was there as well. And it goes back to that wanting to be in a room with the producer on my own, as well as not feeling comfortable with the sound. So again, the following day, go to his house, and within 45 minutes, we got the vocal. And it was, <clears throat> again, ab- about being in the right mindset and in the right space at the time. So that happened, and I didn't think anything else of it. <clears throat> and I think we came home, uh, came back here, and we continued writing our stuff. And then I got the call to say, you gotta get, you got to get over here pretty quick because it's all kicked off, the film's come out, and went back over there, did the promotion, and it was just a whirlwind. <clears throat> um a whirlwind time and uh, just so grateful to be able to be given that opportunity to have sung with Celine and uh, and worked with uh, David Foster and been part of that whole... I mean, Sleeps in Seattle as a film is just one of the biggest films ever, isn't it? I mean, everybody loves that film. Yeah, absolutely. So the first time you met Celine, would that, was that in the studio? Yeah. And what did you make of it? Um, very uh, focused. Yeah. Pro. Pro. Focused. Um, in and out, job done, professional, um, no grey areas, just uh, I'm in there to do a job and that's what I'm going to do. And I liked that because I was the same. I was very much a case of when I'm in the studio, that's it. That's It's, it's, it's work now, you know. Um, and we bounced off each other quite well and I ended up actually uh, touring the States with Celine. Uh, um, I think it was her colour of my Colour of my love, love, yeah, yeah at tour. Uh, and coming on and doing the number as well. And that's at the same time when one of my singles was was being released. So great, great, great experience. And uh, again, you know, the stars have to be aligned. You have to be in the right place at the right time. And a lot of it's luck, you know. Um, and if I'm honest, when I, from my perspective, when I look at Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan and I look at Celine Dion and myself, we weren't far off from a marketing point of view the image worked, you know, so I'm sure there was a, a, that had a part to play in it as well. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a perfect duet. And I imagine from a musical point of view, even the very first time you heard David's kind of arrangement with Jeremy Lubbock's strings all over it. I mean, it wasn't, it was a very contemporary take on a very classic old song. It was, but I can tell you now, it's a very hard song to sing. And a lot of people think, the easy, it's a, that would be an easy song. Uh, but a lot of the easy songs are really, really hard, mm. especially when, for me, when you're, you're living up to Nat King Cole, you know, yeah. for a start, you know, you've got to do something that's not even close, but passable and acceptable. But because I was singing in and around Celine, I was actually singing over three octaves. Yeah. 
So I started off in, and, and went above and below and above and below all the way through the song. So that actual rendition, for me, it was really, really tough to get to get it right, to get it spot on. Um, probably one of the hardest vocals I've, I've had to do, to be fair. Yeah. And coming from a world of growing up around crooners, I mean, what did your mum think of it? Oh, she loved it. Because that's probably the record she's been waiting for you to make your whole life. Yeah, right? of course it is. Yeah, and it was a departure from what I was doing, really. And you know, in in some in some respects, it was a great thing, but in other respects, it wasn't such a great thing. And and, and I, I guess the reason why I say that is great to have the experience. Number one, pretty much all around the world, and you know, x amount of selling albums, amazing, and, and like t- made huge award ceremony TV performances. I mean, just. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was lucky enough to to go on to Arsenio Hall and all of the great Saturday night shows. We were nominated for a Grammy for it. I mean, I, you know, what else can you can you wish for? But it wasn't the direction that I was going in as an artist. So there was a bit of a conflict between what was successful there and the album that I was putting out. Um, and why I say, you know, it's a good thing and a bad thing, uh, that's what people have got to listen to, so they wanted more of that. So what happened was, again, I don't, uh, you know, the record companies have to promote you. They've gotten a, a bit of success. So they went in that, they picked the songs off the album that were closer to that kind of style. Um, and in hindsight, maybe uh, as much as it was a good thing, had I not have done it, then maybe my career would have gone in a slightly different direction musically um, and stylistically. But, hey, you can never, uh, you know, I could never say I wish I'd never done it because uh, it, it was a great experience. And, and for me, you know, probably one of my highlight, the highlights. And, again, you were able to kind of bring back some, I mean, Richard Niles came back for that record to do beautiful orchestral arrangements. As you say, Nicky Brown yeah. is is on there. Um, and, I mean, Show Me Someone Who Cares, again, is one of those defining vocals, I think, of yours on that record. Yeah, again, it's one of those songs. You know, it goes, it's a semi-ballad. You know, it's a ballad. You know, I mentioned earlier on, ballads are, uh, you know, I've always loved singing ballads. Yeah, but it's a gutsy ballad. It's a gospel ballad. It is a gospel ballad. Absolutely. Yes. That, yeah. I think that goes back to the fact that Nicky Brown was yeah. uh, part of a uh, gospel scene. And it goes back to when I used to go and listen to gospel music uh, and to a degree brought up with it a little bit. Um, so, again, all of those people that I've worked with and, and loved working with were all part of that album, which was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing musicianship on that record as well, and I'm super, super proud of it. Okay, so we've gone from you're doing this, you're doing the award ceremonies, you're Celine Dion, you're everywhere, everything's couldn't be better, and then it all stopped. Yeah, it did. What happened? I think um, just to remain positive about it, what happened was... Um, this, when I Fall in Love came out and then Celine was about to put her single out but they did the rec- Sony decided to put my record like my record out first Commitment of the Heart which was the first uh, single in America after When I Fall in Love and initially it was getting great radio play it got into the charts really quickly flying up the, the uh, flying up the charts 
And then uh, I remember going to a radio station in Boston and I was having a, doing a, an interview on, on radio in Boston, which went really, really well. And afterwards, the, uh, the, 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 the manager of the studio uh, took me out. We had something to eat afterwards and he loved the album. He was playing all the tracks off the album and he said to me, he said, Clive, I've got to tell you something. He said, we... <coughs> yeah, um, uh, back in the day, uh, what used to happen is record companies used to cl- cl- have like a priority record that they wanted a record station to play, and mine was about one of the priorities from Sony at the time. And Selena had put her album out, her, her single out, um, and I can't remember what, what song it was now, but it went on to be huge, one of her biggest selling uh, singles of all time. But at first, radio stations didn't weren't, playing it that much so obviously Celine had uh, had been hugely successful before and the record company had to break this this record through would that have been think twice yes yeah <clears throat> and um so the onus from of priority changed is probably the easiest way of putting it and I think radio stations lost confidence because one minute they were being told that this is the priority and then, they, and then I kind of slipped down the pecking order. So then consequently, just as, again, it's the story of my life in music, just as something's about to happen, some, some other dynamic comes in that changes and shifts it, and which is what life's about, you know, so it's no different in, in music. Uh, you, you shouldn't imagine it to be any different. So then Commitment of the Heart did fairly well, but didn't really break through. And then unbeknown to me at the time, uh, I was, I think I mentioned it earlier, I was in a shop uh, doing some shopping and I heard We Don't Know How to Say Goodbye, which was the other Diane, one of the other Diane Warren songs I'd sung. And again, you know, I hadn't recognised it at first. I thought, oh, that's me. And I didn't realise they'd put out that song as a... And I didn't really have an awful lot of... Unlike my first record deal with the relationship I had with Nick Angel and and the people at the label, um, they knew what I was trying to do. But I think Sony Sony just, just wanted me to have a hit and they were following that road, the When I Fall In Love road. Um... And it just didn't quite work out. Um, so I ended up coming back home. And I ended up coming back home here after being nominated for Grammy and having all that wonderful stuff. Well, actually, my album did fairly well, but it didn't just didn't break through again, you know. So at that point, I kind of had a little bit of a crisis, to say the least, as a lot of us do. I had a bit of a few mental health issues and, you know, sort of getting to that point, I thought I'm just about, you know, to be able to get there. Um, and it didn't happen. So I kind of came back home and I we were still writing. We were doing a variety of other, other things as well. And I remember um, thinking, don't sure that I want to pursue a solo career. I'd rather perhaps go into the background a bit um, anymore. And so I remember we started writing, <coughs> well, we continued writing, we were writing at DMC, and at the time, 
GMC were um, expanding their operation and they wanted, they had stress records, a variety of other projects that they were working on. Um, I remember having a conversation with you and Tony and I ended up going to, to work for, for DMC for a short period of time as a, like a development, artist development, bringing in artists for the labels, which was fantastic. Um, and uh, did that <clears throat> for a short while and then we recorded uh, You're the One for Me, which was, yeah. uh, came out. Again, that was a, another a rare foray for me after that event as uh, into doing lead vocals. That was with um, uh, Prelux. Yeah. Prelux, yeah. That came out. And then I think uh, Tony and DMC wanted to go in a different direction, uh, not necessarily with me, but as uh, they were looking to build their uh, empire in a different way. <clears throat> so I ended up uh, still working with you, but not necessarily doing the artist development thing. Well, there was also a lot of a lot, a lot of backing vocal sessions, which, including super famous ones, you know, for instance, you know, for the Kylie fans out there, you know, your disco needs you. You're yeah. on that. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, loads of stuff for, for things that we did, but specifically, never forget if I take that. You're very, very much on that. Yeah, that was a great experience as well. And, and you know, you know, if, if, to be involved in such an iconic song, and I say that because that was their last song, and actually for those people that probably didn't know what was going through at the time, you can tell that song, that you listen to the lyrics, you know, it's all about this is the end of the road. But we didn't even know at the time. That's what I was saying after watching the Coronation concert the other week, and obviously the, the boys ended with it, and it's always... I'm always tremendously proud whenever that song is on, sort of being around and producing it. And uh, but the interesting thing about that choir session that we did, because uh, it was all recorded at Gary's house, but we did the choir sessions at Psalm, mm. um, and it wasn't a choir. It was probably six of you that yeah, we then track up. We just that's how we used to do. We still do this day a lot of choirs. You just pick, pick amazing people, but um, it was we were making it up on the spot, and yeah. that, even that woe that is now everybody sings. Just, yeah was just an idea in the room. It was. And I think that's the thing. When you're talking about those great backing vocal sounds, you know, that blend, and, you know, and it was so many times it was the same faces and it was you and it was Lance Ellington and it was Sylvie Mason James and it was Tessa Nars. And blend is so important. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it's such such a key thing, and I, 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 you're right. I went on after after that to do quite a lot. I, I did the Lighthouse Family stuff, their first album. And yes, if, if anyone wants to listen to, uh, was it Ocean Drive? There's a the, the, the there's a the baby on the it. The baby on it <laughs> is is very much. It you. is very much. There me. was an incredible remix that um, David and I did of a, an M People song called "Open Up Your Heart," "Open Your Heart." Um, where we were, we cheekily, because we were so arrogant in those days, we uh, we didn't like the chorus they'd written, so we decided to rewrite the chorus, and then we got that same team in to do it, and there you are yeah. on the baritone. Absolutely, uh, I was lucky enough to work with Sting as well on sort of live some some live oh, yeah. shows with yeah. him, and we did the Brits and stuff as well. Yeah, they, if you love somebody, set them free. That's so, I mean, that was the I mean, there were so many. Obviously, you worked with Guy Chambers and so many other people apart from us, but you know, certainly from Dave and I point point of view, whenever we were to do remixes or anything, actually, even all the stuff from Where Is the Feeling on the Kylie album, yeah, even to the point of touring with Kylie, you did the Tea in the Park. That's right, show, that was great. which is which is so famous for two reasons. One is because it's the first time that Kylie 
people at Team Kylie do that kind of new deconstruction thing. But secondly, for the shorts that Terry Ronald was wearing, which has sort of become quite iconic these days now. They were short shorts. They were very they? short shorts, yes. yeah. I remember them yeah. well. <laughs> and that was you, Terry Ronald and Tessa Niles. It was, yeah. And uh, a great band again as well. Yeah. And uh, loved every minute of it. And, you know, people say used to say to me, say, well, you know, why are you just doing backing vocals? But it doesn't really matter. Music's music. And does does it matter that you're the lead vocalist or the backing vocalist or whatever? If you can contribute to a great record, that's what it's all about. Yeah, but I also think you'd, you had been burnt quite badly by that point and it was a way of staying in music and doing the thing you loved without having to be the centre of attention. Very much so. And by that reason, you... Uh, it's self-preservation. It is self-preservation. Uh, and it, then it got to the point for me whereby um, I was struggling for money and uh, I had to go and turn my life into a different direction. And it wasn't that I wanted to turn my 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 back on music, um, but I just financially needed to go and some, do something different. And actually, to be honest with you, um, it was... a uh, leaving music for the period of time that I did and going in a different direction actually <clears throat> was one of the best things I could have done for me as a person. Um, financially, definitely, getting my feet back on the ground because everybody thinks, oh, you, you earn a fortune when you're the main artist. But believe me, unless you are really huge, um, you don't necessarily make large amounts of money. You might make an advance from a record company that lasts you whilst you're recording this than the other. Um, so, you know, um, without you know, going too far into it, finance played a big part. And uh, leaving music and working it for the company enabled me to get my get things back on track again. Um, never really losing uh, the thought that I might ever re-enter the scene again. But it, if I did, it would be on diff different terms than they were in the past because people always ask me, and I, I, I'm wholeheartedly so grateful for the opportunities that I had. I was a young kid that wanted to make... I wanted to be a recording artist, and I was a recording artist. I was able to work with some amazing singers, some amazing musicians that a lot, a lot of other people would have had the opportunity of, of being with. The experiences I've had in uh, the music business <clears throat> are experiences that not a lot of other people will ever have the opportunity to do. So when I summarise it, I look back and I say, I achieved what I wanted to set out to achieve. So it wasn't like it all come to an end because I, I was, in my eyes, I'd done what I wanted to do. I was a success in, in what I'd set out to do. Um, and so I never look at the, the, the fact that things didn't quite work out in, in a real negative way because how can I? With, you can't have those experiences and meet those people and do all of that stuff and be bitter for it. You just can't because in my eyes, I did what I wanted to do. Yeah, and as you say, you're, to remove yourself from it at that time was, again, self-preservation it was and not only did you remove I mean you removed yourself from it into a world where you were completely in control of it and it, you were at peace yeah. and you didn't have to think about and you could listen to music but I would suggest I mean obviously up until quite recently 
you would not have been going in the loft and looking and listening to anything you'd done. I wouldn't, actually. For quite some time, because it was actually painful. Yeah, you're right. It was painful to a degree, because everybody wants to to, to continue and go on and make records, this and the other. But again, life's not always like that. And it wasn't until we uh, met up again about a year ago, we started talking about um, stuff. And I said, well, there's all this stuff, you know. And then we got together and we started listening to all of this stuff and realised... Again, uh, um, being in touch with Richard again, mm. again after after all this time as well, we collated all of this stuff and there was probably about 25, 30 tracks that we listened to, all at different sort of phases. Some are, are um, in need of work, some that are releasable now and stuff that, that, that never <clears throat> saw the light of day back then. And... I think there's about probably about twelve to fourteen tracks that 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 uh, are worthy of being put out there. Should anybody want to listen? So, again, digging all that stuff out of the loft is part of my renewed uh, vigor to try and get everything out <clears throat> that that I've done, so that if anybody does want to listen to it, it's there for them to listen to. So, recently created my YouTube uh, channel, the CG Vault, where I put all of my uh, Clive Griffin Vault. Um, all of my videos uh, and concerts, actually, at Town and Country Club, um, Ronnie Scott's, all of my promotional videos all in one place, um, along with the Spotify that's now available. And uh, working through this stuff to put another album together of um, material that never got the, 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 the chance to be out there. So Hidden Treasures um, is what we're working towards. And hopefully, not in the not-too-distant future, after a little bit of uh, remastering and a bit of editing here and there, we'll be able to put this stuff out there just on streaming, not through a label, and just put it out there ourselves. And hopefully um, it'll be of value to somebody. I, it really will, and, and just what this actually looks like is the two of us sat around this very table with a DAT player from the olden days and going through things and things, like all these extra things, and you've been back in touch with some of the old songwriters you wrote songs with. And and what's great is, you know, sometimes you know, the unreleased stuff, especially with a lot of the artists I work with, I get asked a lot about kind of, oh, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? And so often the reason something doesn't come out is because it's not good enough. But what's great about what we've unearthed is the quality. These aren't dodgy demos. These are masters, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, there are a variety of uh, stages of them. But again, you know, I've always, you know me, I, I won't want something to go out unless... It's passable, you know, and so therefore my le- my level of what's acceptable is quite high in the first place. And yes, you know, you could go back in the studio and you could re-record them. And yes, you could do this, that and the other. But actually they stand up and <clears throat> and they're worthy of being out there. Um, again, uh, you know, why spend huge amounts of time and energy and money on something that sounds good as it is? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're... In over your entire career, the one thing there's been obviously there's two constants. One is that voice, which is you really we don't you maybe have 
five of those kind of singers in a lifetime. And the second is your quality control. Yeah, and I, uh, quality control, you, you talk about that because I, I, I never used, I was always in the studio, so I wasn't one of these singers, and you'll know this, that came in and did a vocal and left. I was there every second, of every, every recording, every album, I was in the studio. Every time something was being laid down, I was there. And I might not have got involved all of the time, but I was listening and I was afterwards making comments and sort of, you know, sort of executively looking over it and saying, is this is this where we want to be? And probably um, that goes down to my love of music. As I said to you before, it's not wanting to be a star, it's one loving to be around music and musicians and playing music and being creative, you know. Um, so, yeah, quality control is a big part of it. Well, it also means that you can go back and, and now you are in a position, and I think it was it's the wisest thing to do to wait until you are in a position where you can look at it, but you can look at it and you can listen to it and you can be ultimately incredibly proud of what you achieved. Yeah, and I do. Um, and I know when we were listening through some of this stuff, I've forgotten <clears throat> some of the stuff that was even done, you know, but I remember we were both looking at it and going, my God, we did this, didn't we? Yeah. And so, you know, there's... <clears throat> That's an uplifting experience as well, just going through stuff that that uh, you'd even forgotten about. <clears throat> and I remember I, I wrote a song with Robbie Neville, um, It Takes Love, and uh, I listened to it and I thought, wow, well, <clears throat> that's good as it is. you know. Mm. And I contacted Robbie and Robbie said it was more than pleased for it to be put out, you know. So, um, yeah, just great. There's, there's no point in, as we, we talk about my loft, there's no point in, things being on tapes in lofts when nobody's ever going to hear it because people spend time and energy creating this stuff. So uh, get it out there. And if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. Exactly. And, I mean, I guess this all just leads to a world where it, is there a time where you sing again? That's possible. I've, that hasn't been ruled out. Um, I am going over my chops again. It's still in there, and you know, I think, I think if I do, um, it will probably be under the guise of picking half a dozen tracks, going into a rehearsal studio with like a four-piece band, recording it, and then listening to it back afterwards and seeing what that's about, you know, and uh, and possibly pursuing it in a different direction before, and it, perhaps you know you get caught up with record labels and making records, doing it for for music's sake and doing it for the love of music, doing live performance, um, and not really expecting too much out of it. And I think that's possibly um, where I may go in the future. Well, um, I'm definitely here for that. Last question, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but. I wonder, it, it, from the time that you stopped and took out, like took care of yourself, and it took you many, many years to get to the point you are now, which is probably the happiest I've known you actually. Yeah, I'm extremely happy. Apart from when we were making records, yeah, but between yeah. then and now, I think that now is the happiest. I wonder if it would have been, if you wonder if it would be easier had today's attitudes towards mental health been the same as when you needed that 
Yeah, it's extremely different um, back then. Because there was a bit of a stigma really back then, wasn't there? there and was. it was quite harder to ask for help. There was, and it was almost like it was a weakness. You know, if you mentioned at the time that you were going through problems, people used to look at it, oh, you're not strong enough, you're weak, you know. You know, I remember the old days, it's like, oh, pull your socks up, just get on with it, you know. But it's not like that, it's not about that. And I, I believe, I'm a firm believer that everybody has mental health issues, every one of us. Mm-hmm. At what levels are our own experiences? Um and you, and I find that the, and everybody talks about it, but the only way of really being at peace with yourself about your mental health is you just talk about it. You know, if you can get it out, you know, and just talk about it. I mean, I've said stuff uh, recently to people that I would never have spoken about uh, 10 or 20 years ago, um, but I get a great uplift by at least getting it out of my system and talking about experiences that I've had, things that have happened to me. And other people say, well, that happened to me as well. You know, how did you deal with that? I said, well, this is how I do it. Well, I wasn't able to deal with it that well. So the modern, I think sometimes we, mental health is spoken about, it's very trendy. And I think sometimes we we can go overboard with mental health because people might think they've got mental health issues when they haven't. Um, But to to have that infrastructure and and to have that now in society whereby people can get help is is just tremendous. Um, And as you say, I'm in a a great place now. I mean, I I feel, as a person, I feel like I've learned a lot. I've gone around in circles. I've certainly made a lot of mistakes, uh, but I've learned by those mistakes. And I think that's that's all all you can do as a person. And... I think I'm less selfish than I used to be and I think there's an element of of that that comes into it when you're doing what you do as an artist everything's focused around you so it's all you know you 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 um and actually stepping out of it um <clears throat> has made you know it, it was never a f- it was never something I, I actually went out of my way to do but I think um I'd rather give back now and if I got the opportunity to give other people a a bit of an understanding of what it's like to be in the music industry, what it's like to be that person that everybody is is focused on um, and give a little back to new up-and-coming people so they can learn um, and learn the right things and look out for what to expect gives me great joy, you know, and, and, and to me... And I goes, but I think it's the Eric Clapton scenario with me. You know, he was giving me an opportunity, and um, <clears throat> how could I not try and do that at this stage of my life with young, uh, up and coming people? Exactly, exactly, beautifully said. So the three albums are all on streaming, Apple, Spotify, everything. Please go and check them out. Um, the uh, the Clive Griffin Vault is on YouTube. There's various things from the loft that are being found, converted and uploaded. Uh, who knows what might surface on there, including some, I think there's some Bearsville stuff on there, isn't there? Some there of, is. Of the original before and certainly on that Sony, Sony album where we sort of remixed a few things. We, yeah. You managed to salvage some of the originals. So, so you can actually, if you're a, if you were specifically if you're a musician and you want to hear the musicianship of three of the finest of the, in, of the world, playing they're they're all up there um there's a large possibility that some of these hidden treasures are going to be unearthed uh sooner rather than later maybe Mm -hmm. yeah and you never know once it could be in a rehearsal he might make a noise 
and let's see what happens. But um, thanks so much for this. It's been it's been such a joy, kind of reconnecting, and yeah, it just gives me so much joy just to see you as happy as you are now, and looking back and finally seeing the thing that everybody else fell in love with. You can now appreciate yourself a bit, and that's lovely. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot.